Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to the Maritime Ireland Radio Show. We'll be doing a bit of remembering in this edition of our Maritime programme about the historic coastal town of Arklow and about the influence of the Royal Navy on Irish historical events. Naval history is something which operates on different levels and influences Irish thought. It influences the thought of the people who are governing Ireland in the 19th century, and it influences the thought of the people who are making strategic decisions. We'll discuss whether, as a nation, we're appreciating more the value of our beaches and the importance of protecting them. People haven't realised the resource that we have, the, the thousands of kilometres of coastline that we have and the beaches that we have. I think there was probably a notion in the past that anything left on the beach would be taken away by the ocean, but I think people are more aware these days that there's no such thing. And while there's still plenty of space in Dublin Bay, why has the port company started its own safety campaign? There's plenty of space out there for everybody to enjoy it. We want them to enjoy it, but there must be a particular focus on those shipping lanes to keep people safe. People need to be very aware that if they see a ship upon the horizon, from their low vantage point in their boat, that ship will actually be very close to them in a short period of time. And there's a lot more on this, the sixth edition of the Maritime Ireland Radio Show, which brings you the most comprehensive coverage of news, comment and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. Dublin is the biggest and busiest port in the country, with almost 50 ship arrivals or departures every day. So the shipping lanes of Dublin Bay and the River Liffey are very busy, with multiple vessels often moving at the same time. It's also a big leisure area for boating, sailing, rowing, kayaking. And the port company has seen a big increase in these activities over the past few years. Noted in a survey it carried out that showed the biggest water-based public leisure activity was swimming. But 50% of those surveyed said they were not well attuned to water safety. That has led to Dublin Port starting its own water safety campaign, about which Harbour Master Captain Michael McKenna has been telling me. Well, Dublin Port has decided to launch the water safety campaign because we, from time to time, see uh, leisure and other users uh, enjoying the bay, but perhaps um, not being aware of their surroundings and, and not having the relevant safety equipment on board their boat. And we want everybody to enjoy Dublin Bay safely. We want to assist them in getting their bearings, finding out about the shipping lanes and enjoying that day sailing, swimming, fishing or whatever it may be. So how are you going to get the message across? Well, what we started out with was an online questionnaire uh, that we operated through social media. And it gave us some really good statistics, really, on how to run our campaign this year. So as it turned out, it was only about 10% of people said they were familiar with the types of vessels that would use Dublin Bay and use those shipping lanes, the 50 ships that move in and out of the port per day. Uh, and then the questionnaire online also told us that although most people, two-thirds of people, said they were aware of important equipment like life jackets and first aid kits, there was only about a quarter of the people said they were familiar with the use of VHF radio, which of course is a very important communications and alerting system. And mobile phones are no replacement for a VHF radio uh, on board a boat. So using that information we've set out now, we've we've described charts or maps of Dublin Bay uh, on our website and through social media for people to look at so that they can get their bearings and become familiar with the routes that the traffic takes through the bay. And uh, after leaving a huge section of Dublin Bay, uh, north and south, for, for other people to enjoy safely. That figure that came up in the survey you did, did that surprise you? It certainly surprised me that water users, people in boats, wouldn't be that attuned to water safety. Would they be people 
maybe not members of clubs, not in an organised system of, of, of using the water? Yes, I, I think so. And we do see an awful lot of, of people taking to the bay here that are, are perhaps casual users of the water. So it's really important that those people have the opportunity uh, and have resources to go to, to to get safety information, to make themselves aware of the risks. And there there are many of those resources online, whether it's Water Safety Ireland, our own website, dubinport.ie forward slash water safety. Indeed, the Code of Recreational Craft, which is, which is issued by the Department of Transport. Um, but just to make it as easy as possible uh, for those people to access that information, that, 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 that was key to us. I find surprisingly, but it does still come across to what some people seem to think. They don't seem to realise that leisure craft don't have rights over commercial shipping in a commercial port. Indeed, for us as professional mariners, we're, we're well aware of the, what we frequently call the rules of the road at, at sea and that in shipping lanes, ships drive on the right-hand side and if they're constrained or if they can only navigate within a a narrow channel or a fairway, uh, vessels less than 20 metres in length must keep out of the way. And that, of course, is, is that unseen danger underneath the water that the there is not deep enough water for that large vessel to move out of the way of the smaller leisure craft uh, for, you know, for, for fear of uh, running into danger itself. So, yeah, any way that we can help to share that message will we'll, uh, educate and equip that leisure user to, to operate their, their boat and keep their crew safe uh, during their, their day voyage or whatever whatever it is they're embarking on. And it is a fact, isn't it, that this old adage about steam giving way to sail has absolutely no legal application in a port area. Yes, indeed. Out on the high seas, of course, there's different scenarios and interactions between vessels of different sizes and different rules the road apply. But of course, you know, that within a, a, a very busy port area and Dublin being and many other ports around the coast being those busy areas we have up to 50 ships arriving and departing in a day they don't all arrive over the average of two per hour they come in caravans oftentimes or a fleet movement almost of ferries coming in and out so it can become a very very busy place the bay is only only a number of miles across so for those in boats actually a number of miles is a small space um, and, and people need to be very aware that if they see a ship upon the horizon, from their low vantage point in their in their yacht or their boat, that ship will actually be very close to them in a short period of time. It's a beautiful bay, huge area, magnificent resource both for c- commerce and for leisure. Is your message getting across, do you think? We certainly hope so, and we're going to keep sharing the message as best we can. I think there's an increasing number of people looking to use the bay and, and even you know as we've come out of the the COVID-19 situation people are, are looking to get back to to activity and to leisure and, and even to take on some new ventures which which of course we welcome uh, and what we really want to do is just equip them to to do so to do so safely um, and to be very aware of those risks and be very aware of where they can get the relevant information. In an analogy it would be it's fair to say, if you're venturing out on the road, you know the rules of the road. If you're venturing on the water, let's know the rules of the water. That's it indeed. That's it. There's plenty of space out there for everybody to enjoy it. We want them to enjoy it, but there must be a particular focus um, on, on those shipping lanes to, to, to keep people safe. You're absolutely right. Captain Michael McKenna, Dublin Port Harbour Master, and everywhere around the coast, the safety message and the rules of the road and harbours and ports should be noted. The blue flag is one of the world's most recognised eco-labels. This is the 35th year of the International Environmental Programme, administered here by Antashka, which this year has awarded the blue flag to 85 beaches and 10 Irish marinas. Ian Diamond is the Coastal Awards Manager for Antashka. So are we as a nation becoming more aware of the value of our beaches and coastal areas. This year we had a record number of blue flags, um, 85 for beaches and 10 for marinas. So the total of 95 is the highest uh, in the history of Blue Flag in Ireland, which is in its 35th year this year. Uh, we also had uh, 62 Green Coast Awards uh, awarded around the coast as well. There were obviously 
some people gaining and some people losing. Overall, some beaches came back on, some didn't. Yeah, there was a net gain of two. Um, so there were five um, uh, blue flags lost for beaches on the basis of water quality. Uh, unfortunately, one of those in Cork, but we did have uh, two extra ones in Cork to make up for that. Um, those were uh, Yall Front Strand and Fountainstown. Yall Front Strand would have been awarded because um, the water quality has impro- been improving there in recent years, um, whereas uh, Fountainstown water quality has been good for many years, but they simply hadn't applied for a blue flag. Are you happy with the results overall then? Are our beaches doing better than we had been doing? Yeah, well, the the water quality has been showing a steady improvement over the years, and that's sort of borne out in the increased numbers. So it kind of meets our expectations in terms of um, increasing the numbers. So we're getting towards 100 at this stage, which is probably the upper limit, uh, unless there are a lot more marinas awarded in the coming years. Now, obviously, keeping um, beaches in good quality takes a lot of work. To what do you credit the efforts of... Is it the local authorities, voluntary groups? Well, there's a lot of actors involved. Uh, In relation to the blue flag, it's down to the local authorities' uh, management of the beaches. And um, also, in terms of the water quality, it can be down to wastewater treatment infrastructure improvements by Irish Water. In in terms of complying with the criteria, there's a lot of uh, management measures that can be put in and are just a, a matter of resources, oftentimes, allocating the correct resources. Whereas the, the water quality aspect of it can take several years um, to go on board, which is why the, the number of awarded sites generally increases. And it's a, it's a good marker for improving water quality. Are people becoming more aware of the importance of these aspects, Ian? We see a lot of uh, efforts being made. You know, obviously there's a control of animals, pets, dogs, horses and beaches and all that being taken into consideration. But overall, are people more aware now of the importance of good quality beaches and good quality bathing water? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the sort of impacts of the pandemic and not being able to travel abroad meant that more people um, actually engaged with the coast here, um, not just during the summer, but all year round. So I think people are becoming more tuned in to uh, water quality issues and sort of informing themselves in relation to water quality. What's your suggestion, recommendation to people listening now about preserving the what's been achieved? In terms of what they can do themselves at home, I suppose we, we, we run this other program in in uh, cooperation with Irish Water. It's called uh, Think Before You Flush. So basically, in the in the home environment, um, to only um, flush appropriate items down the toilets. Um, that's one thing they can do. It's, it's a very simple thing, and it, it seems it might seem a little off topic, but in terms of um, going to the beaches as well, not leaving any litter behind. Um, that's a big one. There's the the beaches. Um, there's, there's litter bins there. Use them. If the bins are full, bring your litter home. Um, I think there was probably a notion in the past that anything left on the beach would be t- just taken away by the ocean. But I think people are more um, are more aware these days that there's no such thing as a way when it comes to uh, litter and waste. That's a very perceptive observation. Obviously, the sea doesn't take it away. It needs to... It needs awareness all the time amongst the public of the value of the sea and the value of our beaches. Yeah, um, and as I said before, I think people are becoming more tuned. I think people haven't realised the resource um, that we have, the the thousands of kilometres of coastline that we have and the beaches that we have until I think the the opportunities to go abroad were limited in the way that they were. Um, And, you know, I think the, the management measures that have been taken by local authorities all around the coast and in inland areas as well. We have, we have some inland bathing wars um, to sort of bring them up to the awards, to Blue Flag Awards standard. I think people will appreciate that more. And that's good news. Ian Diamond there, Coastal Awards Manager at Antashka. We head west now to that lovely part of coastal Connemara, Clifton, which has a new lifeboat that is very special. The first of its kind, in fact, with the names of thousands of people on its hull, written into the registration numbers of the boat. The new all-weather RNLI Shannon-class St. Christopher was beached, yes, 
brought ashore onto the beach when it arrived, because it is the launch a memory lifeboat. Neve Stevenson, media manager of the RNLI, was there. If you didn't already know, Clifton's new Shannon-class lifeboat is a launch a memory lifeboat. The St. Christopher carries the names of over 10,000 people on its hull, which were put there by members of the public through a special in-memory fundraising initiative for the charity. I love the arrival day of a lifeboat, usually a quieter affair than a naming ceremony and service of dedication. It's very much a local affair for the crew, their families and the community. This one was a little different. It was an emotional homecoming and saw a steady stream of people coming to look for their loved one's name and touch the place on the lifeboat where the name was placed. Clifton is a beautiful place with roads winding around the village. Abandoning the car outside the all-weather lifeboat station, we walked the 20 minutes to Clifton Beach where the St. Christopher was up on the sand and fully accessible to the public. Coming around the corner, I wasn't prepared for the sight that greeted me. There she stood, bathed in sunshine and listing slightly, anchored in the sand. This was made possible by the fact that the lifeboat has no propellers, but water jets, which gently sink into the sand as she was manoeuvred onto the beach. A common sight emerged as we stood respectfully back and let people find their names. They knew where to go, as they had found them already on a special app to locate the position on the lifeboat, and from a permanent sign that will stand in Clifton, replicating where the names are placed. People were excited to see the lifeboat, and when they got near and saw the name, it was very emotional. The power of a name, one that you put there yourself, written on the side of a lifeboat that will launch in all weathers to save those in distress, is a powerful thing. Hans silently reached out to cover them and take a moment of reflection. Sharing the stories behind some of the names were Mary McDonough and Shane Walsh. Mary has her two brothers and her father on the lifeboat. Liam drowned at the age of 25 in 1984 and his brother, Fehin, drowned with a neighbour while checking pots in April 2009. Her father, also named Fehin, made six curricks for Clegan Regatta in memory of Liam after his death. Mary has a special reason for putting her two brothers together on the lifeboat. Fehin had children and grandchildren, a legacy while Liam died young with no partner or children. She did not want him forgotten, and now they are remembered together, going with their father on lifeboat adventures for years to come. My brother Liam drowned in 1984. Um, there was no alive then. My brother Fahin, he drowned 21st of April 2009 with his friend and neighbour, Tony Cole. Tony was a father with two babies. Um, the Ornali found them, they searched all day, got them, and they were a great support to us all. So we're very proud that we were able to put their names on the boat, and it's a source of income for the Ornali. Shane Walsh from Ballycotton made the trip from Cork as it marked 10 years to the day since he lost his father. Fergal Walsh was lifeboat crew in Ballycotton and was also awarded a silver medal for gallantry when he entered the sea in 2001 to save the life of a young man who had been swept off the rocks. The rescue was carried out with Peter Cuthbert. Peter was knocked off his feet and the line they were using, which was attached to a boy, became entangled around Fergal. Despite this, he held on tight to the young man and a life was saved that day. My father's name is Fergal Walsh. He's on the starboard side of the boat. He was a Belly Cotton RNLI member for a number of years and today marks his 10-year anniversary. The reason we put him on the boat was because he actually received a silver medal from the RNLI, a bronze medal from the Coast Guard and the Maud Smith Award for saving a young fella in Belly Cotton on, in August 2001. And just I thought no better way to have him commemorated than putting his name on the side of Clifton, an Irish boat. Standing surveying the scene was Clifton Lifeboat Operations Manager, John Britton, beaming with pride and talking all day with visitors. John has been waiting for this moment for a long time. He had followed the journey of the lifeboat crew who travelled to Poole over a week earlier to pick up their lifeboat and undertake the voyage home. This saw them stop at a few lifeboat stations, including a poignant trip to Penlee, where they laid a wreath for the lifeboat crew who were lost in 1981. Once on Irish shores, they visited Kinsale, Ballycotton, Valencia and of course the neighbours out in the Aran Islands. 
it's a very special day for us. We've dried out our launcher memory, Shannon, the St. Christopher, on the beach here at Clifton. And she's going to be our lifeboat for, the, for her working life. And we're delighted with that. And we've dried her out today to allow all the people who put their names of their loved ones onto the number of the boat. There are 10,000 names on them, and we've had a fantastic crowd of people coming to look at and find the names of their loved ones. It's a big responsibility to hold so many loved ones' names on your lifeboat. And of course, there will be interest from all the donors on call-outs and rescues. There will be opportunities in the future to see the lifeboat up close. She will be beached for scheduled maintenance and the station will update their Facebook page in advance to let people know when this will happen. The lifeboat is moored out on the water, but she is in sight. This all started as a fundraiser for the RNLI, a unique way to raise funds and awareness, but it has become so much more. Another name on St. Christopher is a former mentor to me and the man who gently nudged me to reply to an Irish Times job advert for the RNLI in Ireland. A Kerry man, he thought I'd love it. I was a landlubber, a city girl, and I had never even heard of the RNLI. They never troubled my mind. I resisted initially, but Bart was right. Years later, here I still am, and Bart Cronin is on board his own lifeboat, now off on the west coast of Ireland. Fair seas, my friend. Neave Stevenson of the RNLI at the arrival of Clifton's new lifeboat and a personal memory also of a journalist I also knew of my time in Dublin. Now Anton O'Callaghan has a roundup of other maritime news. Planning permission has been granted for the onshore infrastructure required for the second phase of the Arklo Bank Wind Park. SSE Renewables plan is to spend 2.5 billion euros on the offshore wind project in the Irish Sea to generate 800 megawatts of renewable wind energy. The completion date is 2028. Two 50 metre high cranes at Cork's Ringeskiddy container port have been named after legendary giants from the folklore of Cork Harbour, Mahane and Benee. Cork Port Company held a competition for local schools to choose the names and it was won by Crosshaven Boys National School. 800 students in 12 schools took part. Apparently the two giants were known for throwing huge stones around Cork Harbour, one of which landed at Ringeskiddy and the other at Crosshaven. The government is absolutely committed to maintaining a search and rescue base at Watford Minister of State for Transport Hildegard Nocton told the station's helicopter search and rescue base team during a visit there. She is also to hear from the Oireachtas Transport Committee, which will tell her that she must recognise and meet with the Irish Coast Guard Volunteer Representative Group, who told the committee that morale in the Coast Guard was at an all-time low. They have blamed management attitudes. That has been denied by Coast Guard management. A 60-year-old seine boat used by fishermen on Dursey Island in West Cork has been restored by the Allahees Men's Shed. It had lain unused on the island for 11 years and was given to the Men's Shed by the oldest resident of the island who will be 81 next month, as David Dudley of the Shed Association tells us. She came from Dursey Island. She's 60 or 70 years old. A man from Dorsey Oil who's still living, he's the oldest resident in Dorsey. You know, he's Jimmy Harrington. He's, he'll be 81 in July and uh, he gave us the boat to restore her. She'll be the exact same style as the old traditional sailing boats, but they were 27 feet long. This one is 18 feet long, So, but she'll be the same proportions, you know, the very traditional to this area. Um, she, I suppose she would have been had potting and netting and all that kind of stuff but we're officially launching her on the 12th of June down at Garnish Pier and Castle Bay Rowing Club are going to row her for us and she was idle for 11 years and we were looking for a project for the men's shed and a lot of our members would be kind of retired fishermen or very much involved David Dudley of the Allahees Men's Shed and the boat is named the Dursey Clipper The Irish Fish Processors and Exporters Association has called for immediate independent oversight of the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority after the controversy over fish landings at Killybegs. It is a matter for the Doyle to deal with, said the Exporters Association Chief Executive Brendan Byrne. At present, the SFPA is not fit for purpose. 
the Fisheries Protection Authority rejected criticism of its operations at a hearing of the Oireachtas Committee on the Marine. A fish stock survey will be carried out on Loch Ree from June 7th to June 25th by Inland Fisheries Ireland, with survey nets set at 100 locations, depending on weather. Waterways Ireland is advising all vessel users to take care. Nets will be marked by orange boys with IFI survey identifications, and IFI vessels will be operating on the lock during day and night hours. Rising sea levels in Ireland will lead to previously rare severe flooding becoming the norm, according to research by the Hamilton Institute and Icarus Climate Research Centre at Maynooth University. Data from Cork and Dublin show incontrovertible evidence that sea levels are rising around coastal areas due to a combination of global warming of the oceans as well as local factors, the centre says. It has recorded that the sea level around Dublin rose by 1.1 millimetres every year between 1953 and 2016. Adaptation measures are needed according to the scientists. And that's the Marine News Roundup. Anton O'Callaghan reporting. Listening to the monthly Maritime Ireland radio show, bringing you comprehensive and informative news, comment, and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition, and development. Arklow is in the southern corner of County Wicklow and was once one of the busiest ports in Ireland, a renowned centre for boat building and fishing. The National Sail Training Ship Asgard was built there. Arklow Shipping is still one of the biggest international shipping companies, but fishing has declined. I reported from Arklow many years ago when the first of lovely old wooden fishing boats was being broken up under a European Union-enforced reduction of the Irish fishing fleet. It was a sad sight. Back in September of 1910, Arklow suffered a fishing tragedy when the fishing boat Alice, homeward bound with her catch, was struck by a steamer Melissa off Kilkeel in County Down. Her crew of six, four from Arklow, one from Wicklow Town and one from Balbriggan in County Dublin, lost their lives. Arklow is also the home of the Breen brothers, Tommy and John, and they were at sea, including with Arklow shipping on its coasters. And we saw the power of the sea at first hand, Tommy says. He and John are balladeers also, and of course, there are sea stories to be told in song. They've written and recorded a ballad about the tragedy of the Alice, Calling Me Home, which Tommy has been telling me about. There's a woman here in Arklow. She's 92 years of age, and she wrote a short book called I, Julia, which was uh, about her mother, and she was remembering stories from her mother. And so she's got this little book of short stories. Well, one of the stories I looked at, it, I, I know the woman well, so I was over having a cup of tea with her and she showed me a little bit of the research and, and I've seen something about a, a fishing tragedy. So I asked her about that. Uh, I got a bit of information. We got the names of the guys and it turned out four of them were from Arklow, where we're from. And one's from Wicklow and one's from Balbriggan. So in 1910, there were fishing up off Kilkeel in County Down and in a full boat they were making their way home uh, back to Arklow and they, their fishing boat called the Alice got cut in half by a steamer and they tried to uh, the, the guys on the steamer tried to save them the skipper survived he's, he's uh, but his nephew was one of the guys who died but he, the skipper was the only one to survive but at that time, obviously, there was no re-communication, so we wrote the song thinking of the point of view of the families on the quay hearing about a tragedy, but not knowing who survived. And um, yeah, you know, it was, it was it was one of the biggest tragedies for outlaw people with four fishermen losing their lives on the same night. You know, for, uh, four locals, and even the names of. The guys are very local names, so there's a lot of their descendants would still be around that club and and involved in like Cairns would be involved in 
in ships and engineering and all of that for years and years. Uh, you know, so that's where basically where we got a, we got a snippet of information there and we acted on that because we're out up beside the sea here in Ireland all along. Ackle has a great tradition in seafaring anyway, going way, way back, hasn't it? Oh, yeah. And, and boat building. Tools of Ackle are the boat builders as well. Sure, tools shipping now is, is the, must be the biggest in Europe. Uh, last count, I think it's 67 ships or something now. You know, but when we were back then, you see there was the original Cairns had Cairns had boats and Tools had boats and they amalgamated us and became Ackle shipping. You know the halls had a couple of a couple of ships as well, and and they all they all came under the banner then of the shipping and they kind of went from there. You know, and you, you know that's as much insight I'd have on that now because a lot of like a lot of our friends were all fishermen, like so young fellas all fishing, and some of them went off to Donegal to learn their to learn their trade and. Come back, we we lost people that way as well. You know, the fishing has gone down a lot, hasn't it? Yeah, there's very little fishing out of work. And a lot of there's lads going out catching whelks and all right, all right, you know. And you would get some herons in that around October, November. You know, the Ackle herons is famous. You know, the herons are just right. You know, when they're coming up the coast there, they're coming up past Courtown, Courtown herons they wouldn't be mature enough when they get to Ackle, they're just off the Ackle bank. They're, they're the right time to, to catch them and eat them. By the time they get up to Wicklow, then they're too mature. And we, we live by that code. <laughs> My brother John is actually singing the song that you're going to play. Um, um, the song is called, the song is actually called Calling Me Home. You know, and it's, like I said, it's about that tragedy in 1910, but uh, we've lost friends and acquaintances to the sea over the years. Uh, my brother John, he, he lives in Wicklow Town now, which is a coastal town as well, of course. You know, but John, yeah, we, uh, well, I've been playing and writing songs for years. You know, it's, like I said, uh, my teenage years were spent on ships, but I was always into music. And I, I went on tour in Europe and that with a, a band called Baru. And we wrote a lot of songs and we had a couple of songs in the charts and stuff. And I kind of, I was away living down in the Canary Islands there for about 16 years. So I teach music now, actually, to special needs and uh, adult, special needs adults. And we've got a couple of CDs out with them. And, you know, so I do a few hours a week with that. But that's basically what I do now. Myself and John get together every second week and we have a night there where we have a few beers and we put our heads together and we've written a few songs. But that one particularly was one that resonated with our people. Cold autumn morning, the mid-butters shake The factory horn heard on the breeze The end on the Gansey, the boats still ready Their fleet is heading to sea There were seven men on the board, Alice Five of them from Arco Town The fishing was plenty, her hatches all full Homeward down from Kilkeel County down Arco, Arco, you're calling me home On ten or more way to sea I remember the fishermen in their nets As they roll them out on the South Key As they roll them out on the South Key She was broken to by a steamer September the year 1910 The crew on the Melissa They all did their best Their fight to rescue those men The world reached Arkler on that very day Confusion arose who'd survived The fishery was numbed by its worst tragedy They learned that six men they had died
Tommy and John Breen and the story of Arklow and the fishing tragedy. A great historical port full of maritime culture and tradition. Now to the offshore islands and in Ishilar in Clube, County Mayo, from where Rhoda Twombly, Secretary of Kogal Ilona Heron, the Islands Federation, joins me with her monthly report about developments and news on the islands. Hello, Tom, and greetings to all your listeners. COVID put a stop to the island's All-Ireland football tournament for two years, but it was back with a bang this May to kickstart summer on the offshore islands. There was great excitement amongst participants and supporters, not only because of the competitions between rival teams, but because this was the first opportunity for many to meet up socially for a long time. Islanders from Clare Island, Inish Turk, Inish Buffan, Aaron Moore, Inish Moore, Bear Island and Whitty Island, gathered on Bear Island ahead of the tournament that saw the Clare Island team take the 2022 Ladies' Cup, while the men of Host Island Bear walked away champions of the men's competition. Inishir had very encouraging news recently when their gorgeous beach was awarded a blue flag for the very first time. Chloe O'Malley, Manistor of the Island Co-op, expressed their delight at the award, saying that they were so proud of all the hard work and look forward to having lifeguards seven days a week for the summer. Inishir also has a Green Coast Award, while Kermarvi on Inishmore retained their blue flag. Whitty Island Community Centre was host for the launch of the Creative Places West Cork Islands. Creative Places is an initiative of the Arts Council that encourages and supports long and short-term traditional and contemporary arts projects, as well as projects incorporating digital technology, radio, and podcasting. This will include development companies in West Cork, particularly Bear Island Projects Group, Shirkin Island Development Society, Corkham and Clara, and Ilin West Cork Arts Centre. A unique fundraising event took place at the end of May. Meet me on Clare Island, participants swam or kayaked from Runa Pier in Mayo out to Clare Island, a distance of about seven and a half kilometers, to raise money for the Irish Motor Neuron Disease Association, the Boyne Fisherman's Rescue and Recovery Service, and Bubble Lance, the Children's National Ambulance Service. Over 20,000 euros was raised and people can still donate until the 29th of June at the iDonate website. Congratulations to the Bear Island Project Group, who are the County Cork finalists for the National Lottery Good Works Award in recognition of their great work on the heritage sites on their island. Well done to all involved. The Department of Environment, Climate and Communications is organizing focus groups to participate in the 2022 Climate Conversations and are keen that representatives of island communities take part, adding island voices to the consultation. As part of the effort to create a carbon-neutral island by reducing carbon emissions by 51% by 2030, and to becoming a net zero and climate neutral economy 
by no later than 2050, the government is seeking the opinion of communities and experts throughout the country on how to change the way we live and work to a more climate-friendly scenario. This is a unique opportunity for islanders to contribute to the discussion on climate change. The in-person and online conversation takes place the 9th of June and will feed into the Climate Action Plan of 2022. That's about it for now, Tom, but we'll have more news of activity-packed summer on the offshore islands the next time. But till then, it's Sloan from the Islands. Ben Lines operated Europe-wide container shipping out of Waterford Port. I once sailed aboard one of their vessels to Rotterdam to record a programme report about container shipping. The company closed in 1997. Former staff gathered in Waterford last month for a reunion. Roddy Cook, now on the Aran Islands ferries out of Rosseville, was one of those who organised that reunion. It was a huge success. It went very well. Um, how did it come about? I suppose, really, I live in Waterford and uh, Bell Lines was headquartered in Waterford. Uh, so a number of us, I suppose, are still around that, that area and I meet ex-seafaring colleagues from time to time and the conversation would invariably come around to somebody should hold a reunion. <laughs> we must hold a reunion. So... Uh, and nobody was grasping the thing, I suppose. And I spoke to uh, an ex-colleague of mine, Peter Walter, from the National Maritime College. Peter and I worked together, but we sailed together opposite each other in Bell Lines for a number of years. And I said to Peter, what about it? Will we, will we have a go? So he agreed. And we, between us, we reached out. We established a, a Facebook page. But it worked. It worked. And between it and your own help, thank you, um, and others, and word spread. And uh, we got uh, 31, which is as much as we dared hope for, I suppose, when we, when we set out to arrange it. Must have been a great night of memories and stories of the sea about Bell Lines. <laughs> It was indeed, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Sadly, Bells ended uh, all too soon, I suppose. uh, With uh, I left at that stage, but uh, they they collapsed in '96, and many of those that were there were there uh, at the time of the collapse. But you know, thankfully, went on to gainful employment elsewhere. So, yeah, I mean, some of them I was there 11 years. Uh, Some people were there much longer than that, really, from the from the very early days up to the end. So that the the ships that were Irish-owned, operated, flagged and crewed came in the mid-70s, 74 to 76, I suppose. Um, and the company came to an end in 96. So they, most of them would have had 20 years, uh, maybe a little bit more, uh, working for Bell Lines exclusively. And it was connecting, of course, between, uh, wasn't it, Waterford and Rotterdam? It was, yeah. Waterford and Rotterdam, I don't know if you remember, but you travelled. I brought you home on the Bell Pioneer in 1990 from Rotterdam to Waterford. I remember, all right, having a bed in the hospital on the way out, if I remember correctly. (laughs) That's absolutely correct, yeah, that's right, that's right, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, Waterford to Rotterdam, Waterford to Newport in Wales, Waterford to Radicatel in France, uh, and then out of Rotterdam to either London or uh, Teesport in the northeast of England. It was a time differently, obviously, in the whole cargo operations. It was a time when that service was operating very effectively for, what, 20 years? It was indeed, yeah. I mean, Bell Lines really were very early into the container trade. They embraced it at a very early stage. Um, now, they had, it was established long before the the Irish registered ships came along. It uh, it was there for maybe, I'm, I'm going back, I believe, at least uh, 20, 25 years before uh, the, the the arrival of the Irish ships that we all know out of Waterford. Uh, so they embraced the container trade very early on and, and, and very successfully. And the sad thing is, I suppose, uh, it, it continues. Well, I mean, the container trade is, is absolutely vital to world trade now. It, it continues in one form or another with, I suppose, arguably two or three, certain, probably three companies out of Waterford, uh, Dublin and Cork, sharing the work that was done almost exclusively by Bell Lines. What caused the problem that eventually brought it to an end, Roddy? There, there are two big uh, container countries in Waterford and uh, 
the, there was a storm forecast, uh, which I think really came a little bit ahead of the, the, the forecast. And um, the two cranes were at opposite ends of the jetty in Waterford. The, the drivers were advised to, to to come down out of the cranes and to secure them. They spud them into the ground uh, when there were strong winds forecast. Uh, the driver, um, I can't remember, in one of the downriver cranes, I think, came down from the, 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 the gantry, the crane, and was was making it fast, but a gust of wind uh, overtook him and started to take the crane down the track. And in actual fact, it gathered momentum, ran the length of the track, struck the other gantry at the other end, uh, destroyed itself and knocked the other one out for several months. So effectively, it closed the port and they lost the trade. Literally overnight, uh, it moved elsewhere to Dublin and Cork. What a tragedy, effectively, yeah. So... The, the gathering, anyway, had good memories. It had great memories, and it was great to see people that, uh, in, in, in my case, and, in, in, and for, for many people, uh, I mean, obviously, in 96, I left in 93, um, there were a lot of people there. Most of them I hadn't seen since that time. So people, you know, the, who, for one reason or another, we, we, we scattered and... Um, uh, people very good. They travelled certainly from all over Ireland. We had a few overseas visitors as well, some from uh, the UK and and Scotland. So uh, yeah, it was a it was a, a, a gathering after what nearly thirty years, I suppose. Interesting the way the maritime connection preserves people, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's a very small world, as you know, in in in, in our environment, uh, and getting smaller it seems these days. And you're on, you're operating out of the Iron Islands now. A bit different from Bell Lines. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, yeah, with Aaron Ferries out of uh, Rossaville to, uh, well, principally, I'm on the, the, the larger ferries out to uh, Inishmore, but obviously they serve the, the other islands as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, with a, a three times daily service uh, out of Rossaville to uh, Inishmore, yeah. Roddy Cook, recalling Bell Lines and now sailing the Rossaville to Aran Island ferries route. Jerome David wrote to the programme on a topic to which I had not, like I suspect many people, given a lot of thought. He said the lack of engagement with the history of the Royal Navy in Ireland was a big gap in Irish historical knowledge. That's an interesting point, about which he did a lot of archival work when completing a doctorate. Justin Marr has been talking to him about it. Over the course of the 19th century, the Royal Navy would find themselves enmeshed in Ireland, providing defence against movements from across the Atlantic, while also acting as a deterrent against rebellion. Yet its role has been to a large extent overlooked by historians on both sides of the Irish Sea. The lack of attention to the period comes from both sides. Dr Jerome Devitt's doctoral thesis investigated the Royal Navy's role in Ireland's affairs during the period. When you're talking about what a British Royal Naval historian might be interested in, they generally tend to focus on big fleet activity, gunboat diplomacy around the empire and so on. And when it comes to Irish rebellions, of course, Irish historians would understandably be more interested in what the Irish rebels themselves are doing rather than what they're facing. It's an understandable gap in the literature. And it was only accidentally that I stumbled across a series of documentation in the National Archives in Kew and also in the Bodleian in Oxford that indicated just what a broad scale of activity was happening throughout the 19th century in Ireland with the Royal Navy for both political and military ends. Ireland would become increasingly significant to the Admiralty strategy, providing defence from enemies foreign and domestic. But their role went beyond attacks and exercises. The Navy was seen as encouraging the loyal and overawing the disaffected, both in its activity and how it integrated into Irish society. They would have a role in a broad range of counterinsurgency measures. The phrase that we'd often come to mind when we think of counterinsurgency would be you know, winning hearts and minds, whether that's the American action in Afghanistan or various different British colonial action around the world. The way in which the Royal Navy describes its actions now looks an awful lot more like what I'd have seen in the 19th century in Ireland uh, than I would have previously appreciated. You could break down the activity of a navy into categories. So you could have naval blockades, and this would be a big feature of Irish rebellions, that because the Irish have a large diaspora, they blockade the coast to make sure no international support can come in to help. 
they'd also be involved in things like logistical support. So things like troop transport around the coast, supply and communications. There's also, again, that sense of deterrence. If the Navy is off the coast, then that might have some influence on the coastal communities that maybe we better not get involved in this because that might lead to the final element there of direct action, which would be the equivalent of a naval bombardment. Now, when we talk about something like Easter 1916, everybody is familiar with the gunboat on the Liffey, but this is something that was a, a long-standing tactic that has been used at various different places in Ireland in that time period. So, for example, in 1843, there was a whole Royal Navy plan to basically severed the country in two by occupying the entire Shannon with a whole series of gunboats, pinnaces, a mixture of officers, seamen and marines that would patrol up and down the country to limit the strategic mobility of any Irish rebellion which did emerge. And then the one we could add in in the Irish context is thinking about that kind of socio-economic integration between the Royal Navy and Ireland. One of the promises that had been made to Irish politicians in the immediate aftermath of the Act of Union in 1800-1801 is that Ireland will benefit places like Holborn and County Cork and various other spots around the Irish coast would economically benefit from infrastructure projects that would come from the Admiralty in London. So if you're economically dependent on the Navy, if you have all of your business models are, are focused in and around bringing your produce to Cork or to Dublin to sell to the Navy, that might be another reason that you might be disinclined to get involved in an insurgency. The battle for hearts and minds would also see the Royal Navy engage with both the gentry and the peasantry. Ships would be opened up to visitors, with hundreds of people taking the tour, and many other efforts would look to make friends on shore. When the famine arrived, the Royal Navy played an important role in relief efforts. It had to be versatile and able to handle the balancing act of quickly shifting between military and civil activities. I think balancing act is exactly the right phrase to use because the same vessels that are involved in distributing famine relief around the coast, delivering the grain, those exact same steamers were fitted out with guns and in 1848 were integrated then into the naval cordon around the coast of Ireland. So it's difficult to see the Royal Navy in Ireland operating monolithically. They always have those multiple functions, whether it's that direct action, deterrence, logistical support, or providing those blockades. It's always in the mind of the Admiralty planners in London. It's always in the mind of the Lord Lieutenant and Chief Secretary in Dublin. It's always in the minds of the admirals on the station in Cork that they are providing those multiple functions. Naval history is something which operates on different levels and influences Irish thought. It influences the thought of the people who are governing Ireland in the 19th century, and it influences the thought of the people who are making strategic decisions. The Royal Navy is something which is more integrated into Irish history than most historiographical trends would illustrate. There is a whole wealth of family stories, particularly Irish sailors, Irish officers involved in the Royal Navy, which have yet to have their stories told, which I think would be a fascinating area for Irish local historians, Irish political historians and Irish military historians to explore. The Mar Report from Justin Marr and the interesting topic of Royal Naval history in Ireland. The Round Ireland race is Ireland's biggest yacht race, internationally recognised as one of the top six events in the world. And it's run by a small, family-oriented sailing club, which itself is run by volunteers with a love of sailing. Now that's the self-description of Wicklow Sailing Club by its own members. The race will start at 1 o'clock on Saturday, June 18, from Wicklow Sailing Club, where the Commodore is Kieran O'Grady, and he's been telling me about the club itself. It was founded in the 1950s. During COVID, I would think our membership uh, increased, I mean, off the top of my head, by maybe 100. So we're up to um, over 400 members now, I think, with, you know, families and, and children included in that. And what's the split between, say, dinghies and cruisers? Our dinghy fleet has come on greatly now. In it, it was good probably back in the in the seventies, and it kind of waned a little bit. 
So in the last 10 years, it has become uh, probably stronger in, in regard to numbers in the club. So I, I would think from a sailing perspective, um, it's probably 60-40 in relation, in favour of dinghies. And where would you draw the support from? What kind of a, an area? Obviously Wicklow itself, but even beyond that? Yeah, no, we do have uh, families coming down from Dublin who are who are down in British on their holidays. So uh, th- those kids join us for courses and for racing during the summer. Um, and then, the, 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 you know, the dinghy facilities maybe down in, in Arklow aren't, aren't fantastic. So we do have kids you know, travelling up from as far as that and maybe as far as uh, kind of Newcastle and Kilcool coming down from that direction if they're not going up to Greystones. At the moment, the concentration must be very much at the club on the Round Ireland. We're very lucky to have SSE Renewables as our sponsor and we have a great committee, you know, throughout all the, you know, be it the cruisers, the dinghies, um, and they're all kind of pulling their weight in the organisation and the preparation for the round round. Um, so, yeah, it's all systems go here at the moment. So we've got, we're up to just around 50 boats at the moment. And there are a couple of boats still uh, that we know of for definite um, thinking of entering, but are still holding their powder dry for the moment. The pandemic hit you, of course, two years ago. It did, yeah. No, we were. it looked like we were going to have a, a record-breaking entry in, in 2020. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, due to the pandemic, we had to uh, to hit it on the head. So I suppose considering, uh, all things considered, um, the entry of 50 that we have at the moment, you know, is, is very good. It still makes it one of the premier ocean races around Europe, most certainly. Oh, yeah, no, I would, I would definitely put it in the top six in the world, uh, you know, a Category 2 event. Um, it's it's definitely the jewel in the crown of offshore sailing in Ireland, and um, you know we have people coming from from all over the world again this year. People from America, Finland, France, uh, Italy, um, and of course uh, the British Isles, um, and you know great support from Ireland itself. There's been a lot of, if I may put the word, legendary people associated with organising the Round Ireland over the years. You've always been very fortunate in keeping it in Wicklow, for one thing, against pressure to move it elsewhere. It's a, it's a fair tribute to your club members. Yeah, no. <laughs> it, yeah, no, it certainly is. I mean, and at this you know particular time of the organisation of it, those involved, I fully appreciate what uh, the people who came before us have done um, and, you know, the amount of work that's involved in it. It's much more than, than just a race. You know, we, we are trying to do it for Wicklow itself and uh, to promote the town. So we have a, a festival in conjunction with the with the race itself. Uh, so, you know, that all takes, takes time and draws from the members' time. But uh, ho- hopefully it's going to be worth it now in the end. Kieran O'Grady, Commodore Wicklow Sailing Club, the small family-oriented sailing club with obviously a big heart for the sport and lots of ability to run the Round Ireland race of which he's also director. I've sailed in it a number of times and I've been into the Wicklow Club many times. It is a welcoming place. And so we come to the end of another programme voyaging through the wide variety of the news, tradition and culture of Ireland's maritime sphere. Our email address is maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com and our website is at maritimeirelandradioshow.ie. Phone and text 0872-555-197. That's email maritimeirelandradioshow at gmail.com. Phone and text 0872-555-197. The Maritime Ireland Radio Show is broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland and is widely available on podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever you've been listening, thank you for listening to The Maritime Show. Sound supervision by Justin Marr. There's daily maritime news on Twitter at Tom McSweeney and the blog newsletter on our website, also on Facebook and on LinkedIn. Do please keep in touch. Until next month, the usual wish of fair sailing. <laughs>